Okay, let's uh, jump in. We're going to be in Luke chapter 9 today. I, wanted to, I do want to give thanks to Jordan. Um, he did a great job last week. I appreciate what he said. Some important things for me to hear. Um, so I just wanted to give a shout out. Easter Sunday. I mean, we had a lot of people here, and you know, you know you're always going to have people that are visiting for Easter for the first time, people who you know, are curious, maybe not curious, I don't know, but that morning um, I was trying to speak to those people and also trying to equip us to know how to speak to somebody about the resurrection who needs evidence. And it was really cool because afterwards I, I invited people if they were curious on their way out to grab a Gospel of Mark and a Gospel track we had. 30 Gospels of Mark were taken that morning and 25 Gospel tracks. So those represents real people who are real souls that God is obviously at work and stirring in some form. So um, if the Lord brings that to your mind, we want to be um, praying for them. Okay, this morning we're going to be talking about discipleship. And what, asking the question, what's it really mean to follow Jesus? What's it really mean to become his disciple, his apprentice? And we're going to look at one of the most difficult texts in the New Testament, one of the hardest sayings of Jesus. If you were to make a top 10 list of his hardest sayings, this one, this text definitely makes it. I bet it probably would even be in the top five. Um, what he says has quite a sting to it. Um, even me, I know, I feel like I understand what's going on behind it, but still every time I read it, it kind of grabs my attention every time I encounter it. Um, it really is one of the most important texts in the Gospels concerning discipleship. We're going to see the word follow repeated three times. That's the core of what's going on here. And we're going to see three men who were very eager to follow Jesus, who came to him. Three men who were eager to, eager to follow him. Um, all were willing to follow him. But we're going to see that Jesus, who can see into the heart, knew that they had some flawed assumptions or mis conceptions about what it meant to follow him, that underneath that willingness, that there were some things they didn't understand, and so he is going to work on those misconceptions. Um, nothing wrong with their request, but they are just needing some redefinition. So, if you are the, to Luke, I'd like to have you stand, and I'm going to read in Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, and we're going to be in verses 57 to 62. I'm going to be reading, it's out of the NIV. You can follow along. So as, as they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. You go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. And this is literally the word of our Lord. So you may be seated. All right, so three guys come to Jesus, and it's all about following him. Um, it says they're walking on the road. This is the theme in Luke. If you, if you took home one of those diagrams, this whole middle section of Luke is all about Jesus on the road, on the path to Jerusalem. And they're just going from town to town um, in this section, always on the road. And so we run into this first guy as they're on the road. A man comes up and he says, I will follow you wherever you go, wherever you go. Pretty strong language, right? 
He's heard about Jesus, seen him. I'm not sure if he's seen him in person, but he's excited to follow him. And he's like, man, wherever you go, I will go. The odds are high, we've talked about this before, that when he thought of Messiah, he thought of that victorious conqueror, the military king who would come in and triumph, and he's wanting to be a part of that, is my guess. It, it, following Jesus is, is, in most Jews' mind at that time, if he's the Messiah, that's a path towards upward mobility. Um, if you guys, I don't know if you have been following The Chosen, season two launched a couple weeks ago. Episode three was the other night. And in episode three, his followers are actually talking about Jesus as that victorious military leader and all the sword play they did as kids, getting ready to overthrow the Romans. It was just, I, I just loved how they set all of that up, that, that idea of the Jewish mindset towards what they expected Messiah to be. But whatever it is, he's excited. And so, but Jesus, the reply like seems so not what you expect, right? In verse 58, foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. What he's saying is, I'm not the kind of Messiah you think I am, because I don't even have a home. I don't have a place to lay my head down. Again, in this section of Luke, it just constantly says, as they were on the journey, as they're traveling. So he's just going from village to village. Do you guys remember when we were going through Mark? In Mark chapter 145, something really jumped out at me. It said there that he stayed in places where nobody lived. He stayed in places where nobody lived. So he was even frequently out you know, they were stopping and even in the countryside, perhaps, just throwing up tents or something. So that's his response to this guy. Um, and we're going to come back to these guys in a minute. So verse 59, so that guy initiated contact. 59, he says to another man, follow me. And then we see the man's response in the last part of the verse. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. First let me go bury my father. Seems like a pretty legitimate request, Right? If Jesus wanted you to go somewhere and you're like, my father just died, could I do the funeral first? You'd think he would say, that's fine, right? Um, but that's not what he says. Look at what he says in verse 60. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. You go and proclaim the kingdom of God. You go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Uh, I mean, when you read that, don't you just internally kind of go like, ouch, like, Seems a little harsh, doesn't? Am I the only one that it strikes that way? I mean, still to this day, when I read that, at first you kind of a little bit cringe. On the surface, it seems uncaring to both the man and his family that Jesus would say that. Um, but you know, as I've studied it, I think people often misunderstand what's going on here, what Jesus is saying. And so, remember, when we read the scripture, we need to be reading with first-century eyes, not twenty-first-century eyes. And so for us, I think when we read this, we think of a parent dying, and usually it's multiple days later, you have all the preparation, and then you'll have the actual service, right? Prince Philip just died, what, a week ago Friday, eight days later, they're having the service for him yesterday, and that's how we kind of think of burial, like, okay, my dad's died, can you let me do this thing, and next week, this time, I'll follow you, but that's not what's going on. In Jewish culture... Um, they, by their law, they had to bury somebody the day that they died. So if somebody died in the morning or at noon, they would have to, by sunset, they would have to treat the body, wrap it up, put it in a tomb, and, and put the, the stone over the tomb. They would have to do it the very day of the death. So what we do know is, from their culture, is that while Jesus is walking and this man comes along and he, he says, I want to follow you, that his dad has not died that day. If his dad had died that day and he had to bury him that day, he wouldn't even be there on the road with him. So that's not what happened. It's one of two other things 
that's going on. So let me tell you the rest of the Jewish burial process. You would bury uh, somebody the day of the death in the tomb, roll the stone, and then you would wait for a year for the body to decompose. One year later, exactly one year after the date of the death, you would roll the stone away, go in, and there would just be bones laying on the slab in the tomb. And you would collect the bones, put them in a bone box, or what they called an ossuary. And then on the other side of the tomb, when Pat and I were in Israel and saw this, on the other side, there was the place where the bone boxes would go of people. And so what you're doing is you're cleaning off the slab, putting the bone box over here, so that when the next person dies, they can be laid on that slab. And that's part of the burial process. So if his father has died, what he's talking about isn't, I've got a funeral tomorrow that I have to go to. What he's saying is, is in a year, I'm going to have to go back. We're gonna have, our family's going to have to go in and take the bones out. And so when Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead, what he's talking about, if that's the case, is you don't need to be delaying a year to follow me. You can let the rest of the family take care of that. There's urgency. But a lot of people aren't sure that's what's going on. A lot of people think that maybe his dad isn't quite dead yet, and what he's really saying is, is I want to stay with my dad until he dies. We don't know if he was sick. It just could be he was wanting to take care of his family. Um, Some people think it could be that if his dad is still living, it's not so much he's wanting to care for his dad, but he's afraid of making a commitment to Jesus while his father's still alive. Because Jesus on multiple occasions has said that in his coming, he said, I'm going to bring division, and father and son are not going to get along because of me, brother and sister. And so he very well may be afraid of his father disowning him or rejecting him. We just aren't sure. But the reality is, is we know that his dad had not died. Like There was no funeral like that day or the next day. That wasn't what was going on. So what, what we learn is, is that Jesus is, that what this man's asking for is an infinite delay. He's asking for an infinite delay, no, no time frame at all. And what Jesus knows is, in that meantime, the guy might change his mind. And that, that delay... That's why he says, let the dead bury the dead. He's, he's not talking about dead people burying the dead, right? It's not like Pirates of the Caribbean. He's saying, let the spiritually dead bury the physically dead. It's his way of saying, because he says, you go and proclaim the kingdom. The task is too urgent. The kingdom of God is near. We must go and proclaim it in villages now. I can't wait a year for you to get on board. The spiritually dead can take care of your family obligations, but they cannot, the spiritually dead cannot proclaim the kingdom of God, and that's what I'm doing. T.W. Manson, in his book, The Sayings of Jesus, put it this way, that business must look after itself. You have more important work to do. Not only that, if you think about this, I understand this because of my own family. I was the first believer in my family. Um, is The guy wasn't even thinking priority because his, his father's greatest need, maybe he had a need to be looked after, but his greatest need was his own spiritual soul, his heart. And the thing that his father most needed was proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom. So he's being short-sighted. And then there's the third guy. The third guy initiates just like the first, and it's in verse 61. So still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Again, seems like a legitimate request. Go home, tell mom and dad goodbye before you get on the road with Jesus. But Jesus, in verse 62, replied, No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the service in the kingdom of God. Again, that's like, you know, ouch, like, Jesus, that seems a little harsh. Like, he just wants to go say goodbye to his family, right? And again, I think it's easy to read it with 21st century eyes. 
We live in a very individualistic society that's very mobile, and it's nothing for somebody to just pick up and move, right? <laughs> just, it's just, I mean, it's easy for people to just move, and maybe you'd have a one goodbye dinner, that kind of thing. But in their culture, it was really different. Um, most people in Jesus' time, you lived in the same village your whole life. You never moved on to another career somewhere else. Your whole family was there. Your, not only your parents, your extended family, your aunts, your uncles, your grandparents, your first cousins, your second cousins, your third cousins, there were a lot of people. And in the culture of that day, if somebody were to move, leave a village to go somewhere else to take up residence somewhere else, they would have usually about a week long of kind of a party, a goodbye kind of thing. It wasn't just go home, say goodbye, give your mom a kiss in the cheek before you leave. It was like a week-long kind of party. There was a, we knew an international student who came here from East Africa several years ago. And one time we were just talking about when they left their village because they, they had really stayed there their whole life. And when they left, they said it was about a whole week of dinners with different families, different people, because you knew everybody in the village. And they spent like a whole week, and you're having dinners, not only that, but they're giving you money to take with you. And they said that whole thing is important um, to do all of that. And it's the same thing. There are still people in the world today who, to say goodbye to your people isn't just a wave goodbye. It's, it's like a kind of a week-long commitment. And again, I think what Jesus is saying is, is I'm moving from town to town, day by day. I'm on a mission. I've got things to do, places to see, people to heal. On my way to Jerusalem, I can't set up camp for one week while you have this goodbye thing with your family. The kingdom of God is more important than that. And he's, he's saying that, again, to not hesitate, that if he takes this delay, who knows, in that week he might get too reattached to family and decide not to go there. And so, again, he's just uh, challenging the guy that to follow him means that he doesn't do that. And he says specifically, no one puts a hand to the plow and looks back. Who looks back is fit for service in the kingdom. Um, I have never plowed a field. Field, I've seen it with modern equipment, but in that day and age, um, I have read that when, again, it's, it's important to have straight furrows. I think we still do straight furrows now, but especially then you had such limited land that you wanted to maximize space that they would set up a marker at the end of the field and you would plow to the marker, which required that you keep your eye on the marker the whole time, that there's no looking around at other things, that if you did that, your, your furrows wouldn't be very accurate. Not only that, I've seen pictures of plows, um, what they look like from then. Um, they would have a wooden plow, and they would have a little, the tip of it would be covered in iron. They'd have an iron tip to help dig the furrow through the ground. And Israel is a very stony place. If you ever go there, there's rocks everywhere. And even in what would be their farmland back then, there were still a lot of stones. And if you ran into a stone while you were plowing, and if you bent the iron tip of your, your plow, you made it pretty useless. And so it was really important to keep your eye on what you were doing, on where you were going. That's what was required. And Jesus says, this is what the kingdom of God is like. You can't come into the kingdom, make that, the Greek verb is interesting, that to put your hand to the plow is a decisive moment action. He says, you can't do that. And then the verb of looking back is like, you just keep looking over your shoulder. You can't follow the kingdom and keep looking back at your old life. That's not what following me is about. The task requires a focused eye on what lays ahead, and that's his call. So, you know, I mean, even just trying to explain this, I just want to 
I think we need to understand, he knew these individuals, he knew what was in their heart. I think understanding the culture is helpful. But please, I don't want to blunt the hardness of this text, because even though I understand it, every time I read it, it still kind of goes, you know, kind of grabs me. Like, that seems a little hard, right? I mean, does it feel that way to you? It does to me. And I don't want to blunt it. Um, because this is tough talk. He speaks strongly, abruptly to the point. He doesn't take the edge off what he's saying. He's speaking very matter-of-factly. And maybe part of the reason it kind of bothers me when I read it is that's not in my wheelhouse. That's not my personality. I tend to take the edge off of things, you know, talk around what I really want to say. Um, I'm not like this at all. Um, But Jesus is really to the point. Um, I said first service, what I love about Jesus, he's not a flannel graph Jesus. And Jordan didn't even know what that was, so he, he looked it up on his phone, and he said, that's a, uh, what he, felt board Jesus. Do you guys, he said, none of the college students are going to know what you're talking about. Do you guys know what a felt board Jesus is? I mean, in the old days in Sunday school, <laughs> they had like a stand with felt on it, and then you had little felt Jesus, and you'd put the felt Jesus on, you'd put the felt three guys on, and you'd kind of do this action, and felt Jesus was always really cute, Right? cute Jesus with a smile, and I just want to tell you what I love about Jesus is he's not a felt board Jesus, he's not a flannel graph Jesus, he's, he's a real human and he's the Lord of the universe, and when he wants to speak truth, he speaks truth. So what's going on here? Why these stories? Why is he kind of so in your face with this? And I think it's because Jesus knew there were two kinds of people that show interest in him, two kinds of people. And I think he knew that universally through all of time, these two kinds of people would always be around showing interest in him, that there are people even today like these two kinds of people that encounter him. And if I were to, uh, to put it up on, on this thing, I'm going to skip that stuff. Um, here are the two kinds of people. The first man, I'm going to talk to you a minute more what he's like, but the first man, his problem is he doesn't understand the difficulty and the cost of the kingdom. And the second two men, they don't understand the supremacy and the preeminence of the kingdom. The first doesn't understand the difficulty. The next two do not understand the supremacy of Christ. And so for all of these, all three of these people and the two that they represent, he says things so abruptly because it's almost like smelling salts. He's trying to wake them up to the reality of what following him is really like. Um, So the first man, the first man, he is the idealist. He is impulsive and hasty. He's too excited to take that first step. I mean, he just says, wherever. He would love the song we sang. Good song, but you know, wherever you go, I'll go. Whatever you do, I'll do. He's caught up in the excitement of Jesus and his movement. He wants to be a part. I don't, you know, who knows? Large crowds, lots of excitement following him around. He's the kingdom bringer. He's talking about new wine and wineskins. For whatever reason, he's excited to be part of this movement, and he's excited to follow Jesus. But he doesn't realize the true nature of the kingdom and the true nature of who Jesus is. And what Jesus knows is, is idealists, their, their vision is almost too high, and their vision needs to be brought down to fit more of reality. And so that's what he does. When he says, foxes have dens and birds have nests, I don't even have a place to lay my head. What he's saying essentially is, is do you know who I am? Do you understand the kind of Messiah that I am? I'm not the military victor that you think, and it's all about upward mobility. I don't even have a place to lay my head. In fact, right now, I'm on the path to Jerusalem, and in Jerusalem, I will be rejected, I will be beaten, I will suffer, and I will die. That's the kind of Messiah I am. I'm the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. I don't think you realize 
who I am. And I don't think you realize what my kingdom is about because when I come proclaiming a kingdom in the midst of the kingdom of Caesar and the kingdom of Herod, those kingdoms are inevitably going to clash. That's what Jordan talked about last week. So I'm not sure you understand the nature of who I am. And so what he's saying to him, I think, is what he says to some of his followers. Can you really drink the cup that I'm about ready to drink? So to me, what's going on here is he's saying to this guy, you don't really know what you're asking. You need to count the cost, my friend. You need to count the cost. Guys number two and three, the ones who are hesitant, what they are is they're the realists or the pragmatists of the group. Um, too reluctant to take that first step. Like any good pragmatist, I'm one in the room, uh, they have qualifications and conditions on things, right? I'll follow you if only. Well, I'll follow you, but if. Um, I'll follow you as long as dot, dot, dot. This is what the realists are like. And the problem with these two guys and with all realists is they don't realize that you cannot put qualifications on Jesus. You can't put qualifications on him. Realists say you can't get into something too much. You have to keep a little bit of that life under your control, right? You can't, you can't give everything under his control. The person who's a realist who is interested in following Jesus, what they'll say is, I want to follow you, Jesus, but I still want my career the way I want it. I'll follow you, Jesus, but I want to be able to to, to go to bed with anybody I want to at any time that I want to. I'll follow you, Jesus, but I want to be able to do whatever I want to do with my own money in my pocketbook. So these two guys, number two and number three, both of them are still in the driver's seat of their life. They both are still sitting on the throne of their life. And they don't realize the true nature of the kingdom. Just like the first guy, these two don't realize the true nature of the kingdom and of who Jesus really is. I really find it interesting in the text of these last two guys. You see the Lord, word Lord repeated in both of them and the kingdom of God in both of them. And I think that's really significant because part of what Jesus is saying is, is he's saying, you're entering a kingdom. You're entering a kingdom. And a kingdom has a king, usually only one king. And guess who that king is? It's not you, it's me. And when you're under a king, you don't set the conditions of your service to that king, right? And not only that, but he's saying, and I'm Lord. And I think it's so interesting to me, the words that, that repeat with both guys is, but, Lord, first let me go. Lord, first let me go. And I want to tell you what Jesus is saying, I think, in these answers is he's saying, Lord and but first are incongruent. They don't go together. You don't say to somebody, Lord, but first. That's not how you respond to him. You can only have one Lord of your life. And if you're living your life with if onlys and but ifs in relation to God, I want you to know the Lord of your life is your, your if onlys and your but ifs. It's not Jesus. It's the conditions you put upon him. That's the thing that's really the Lord of your life. And that's what he's trying to point out to these guys. What realists don't understand is the priority of the kingdom of God. And they need to have their eyes lifted higher to see the supremacy of Jesus and his kingdom. So I think to these two, he says, you don't know what you're asking. You cannot put conditions on following me, my friend. I'm the Lord, and I'm the king of a kingdom. If you were to, this sheet of paper, the, the, the earth, this whole idea to me of of that he's the Lord, that he's the king that I'm to follow. 
Um, if you, the distance between the earth and the sun is 92 million miles. I mean, nobody can, that's, I can't even understand that. If the distance from the earth to the sun were this piece of paper, if that's, if that's what 92 million miles represented. If you wanted to know how wide our whole galaxy was, the diameter of it, it would take a stack of sheets 310 miles high that would represent the width of our galaxy, okay? This is from the earth to the sun, the width of our galaxy, a stack of paper 310 miles high. And our galaxy is a speck of dust in our observable part of the universe. It's so small compared to the universe. And then scientists say probably the part of the universe we can observe is a speck of dust compared to the whole universe. And here's what I think Jesus is saying to these guys, without saying it, but I think he's saying it. By my word, this universe was created, and by my power, I hold it together. And you're going to ask me to be your personal assistant in your life, fulfilling your dreams? There's no but ifs. There's no if onlys with me. I'm the creator, and I'm the Lord of the kingdom. So I think all three of these men, they're eager to follow him. But the problem is, and I think the reason Jesus responds, because he's trying to get at heart issues with them in a loving way. It doesn't sound loving, but it is. Because what he knew was, is what they really were, they really weren't ready to be followers. What they were is they were fans. They admired him. They liked him. They wanted to be around him. They were fans of him, but they were not ready to give their life to him. None of these guys was ready to enter the kingdom in their current state. None were ready to be true followers. Kind of like I said at the beginning, they all had some flawed misunderstandings, I mean some flawed assumptions, misunderstandings, that none of them really grasped the true nature of who he was and the nature of his kingdom. Before they can continue this conversation, he's just needing to make some things really clear, and he makes them pretty clear, right? Pretty clear. Um, What that first guy needed is he needed to know that following Jesus is not cost-free, and those next two guys, they needed to know that following Jesus is not conditional. So this text, even Luke 9, as we read through Luke 9, it's all about discipleship and the nature of discipleship and what commitment to Jesus is. And I want you to know, you cannot, as we've been reading this, isn't it pretty obvious that Jesus places the highest priority on following him? Is that not clear? He places the highest priority on following him. And, I mean, to him, following him, discipleship is not casual. But I think it's so easy for us to make it casual. That's been one of the big critiques of the Western church, is that the Western church has made following him, we've really dumbed it down. We've made it, like, too simple to do. If you work with international students, like I did for a long time, from other cultures, you really learn that when somebody comes to Jesus, it's super serious, because they really might lose their family over it. They might lose a job over it. They understand following Jesus is serious, okay? And I feel like in our culture, it's almost so easy that we dumb it down. So to Jesus, it is serious, and to him, discipleship's not obvious, it's not optional. And I think that's why his directness and the shocking quality of his words is because he takes it so seriously. I mean, do you want to know how serious he takes discipleship to himself? Just a few verses before in Luke 9, 23 to 25, here's what he says. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily, take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very soul? You're going to read 
Soon in Luke 14, 27, he says, whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. So when he's having this conversation with these three guys, what he's saying to them underneath all of it, to the idealist and the realist, to all of us, what he's saying is, is following me requires wholeheartedness. It requires a single-minded devotion. It's a fully devoted heart. It's all about me being the one thing, the one thing. Like David said, Lord, one thing I seek. Like Martha and Mary, when he says to Martha, Martha, Mary, she's looking for the one thing. It's the one thing, him being that one thing. That to follow him, it's all or nothing. It's total dedication. That he's got to be the center, that he has to be first place. That's why in Matthew 6.33, he says, seek first the kingdom of God. So when I look at Jesus and discipleship, it's all about commitment. It's not just purely knowledge, you know, oh, Jesus died for my sin, not even assent to knowledge or agreeing with it. Well, I, I, I understand or I, I believe He died for my sin, and that's all important, that's all important, but it's also that step of I'm in my receiving Him, I am committing to, I understand that He is the Lord of a kingdom, and I'm committing to myself to Him with a sense of all-out commitment, that I understand that it means that I'm giving up my right to, to run my life. That Jesus really can't be known apart from absolute commitment. Let me say one thing about absolute commitment, what I'm not saying. Absolute commitment does not mean absolute obedience. Because until I am glorified and am finally set free from the presence of sin, I'm going to struggle with daily obedience like the rest of us. Okay, I'm not talking about absolute obedience, but I'm talking about absolute commitment. And what that means is, is that when I came to Jesus as my Savior and I accepted His forgiveness, it wasn't just, I want to go to heaven. It was this sense of this like deep running stream of, I want to follow you with my life. You're my Lord. You're the King of a kingdom. I want to give all of myself to you. No, I won't do it perfectly daily. I still don't do it perfectly daily. But even in the days where I take the keys of my life back from him and I'm running my life and in charge for a week or so, there's still this thing inside that I know that that's not how it's supposed to be and then I want to give them back to him. Does that make sense? So that the day, that what's underneath is this absolute sense of commitment to him as my Lord and my Savior. And that's what he's asking for. I don't know. I just think in our culture there's a lot of people that are fans of Jesus but who really won't commit their life and who are like these three and who really don't know what it is to be a follower. And I just, you know, I don't like his hard words, but we've got to take them serious. We've got to take Matthew 7 serious when he says, there are going to be a lot of people at the end who are going to say to me, Lord, Lord, who will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And he's going to say, I never knew you, okay? So to me, I'm not trying to do a guilt trip or make everybody think they're not a believer, but I mean, I, to me, we have to take his call to discipleship seriously. It's not just one commitment out of many, it's the commitment of my life. It's the commitment of my life. How many of you in here have ever dated? Anybody ever dated, been in love? Nobody? Wow. How do we have kids like in this church? A few Adam has like, ever had a boyfriend or girlfriend? If you had a boyfriend or girlfriend, did you ever want him or her saying to you, hey, I just want you to know you are one of many to me. You're one of many. I mean, if you have a boyfriend or girlfriend, don't you want to hear from them? You're my one and only, right? That's our deep longing. You're my one or only. How many married people in here? Can I see? 
Okay, don't be shy. Yeah, okay, people are afraid to admit they dated, but if you're married, you probably dated to get there. Uh, I mean, how would you like to hear from your wife? Hey, you're one of many today. You know, you can have me on Monday, but Tuesday to Sunday, there's some other people out there. Nobody wants that, right? You want to hear, you're my one and only. And that's what it is with Jesus. That's, that's what the call to coming to him is, is that you're my one and only. That's my deep heart's desire. Will I be perfect at it? No, but that's my desire. And, and what I love is we see people in the Gospels who do that, who take that call. In Luke 5, when we were reading through Luke, you know, Peter, James, and John, he asked them to follow him. And here's what the words say. They pulled their boats up on the shore, left everything, followed him. Of Matthew or Levi, in Luke 5, Jesus went and he saw the tax collector by the name of Levi sitting in his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. There are people who say, I don't just want to be a fan I want to know you intimately as Savior and as Lord, and I will follow you. One more thing about absolute commitment, the commitment that I think he's asking of us. Is he asking for anything that he's not willing to do? He's asking for absolute commitment. Was he not absolutely committed to us, to the Father and to us? He's on the road to Jerusalem where he's going to give everything, every last drop of blood, his full and final commitment to bring me and you back into a relationship with himself. He is not asking anything of me that he is not willing to give himself. What a great leader, right? What a great leader he is. I'm fully committed. I will do everything to win you to myself. And what I'm asking is return. If you come to me, is will you commit equally to me? Um, I want to read something, if you don't mind, from Friday in the insight. To me, it was really powerful. It spoke to this. G. Campbell Morgan wrote, I do not think we can be too careful in emphasizing this, that Christian life is neither human imitation of Christ nor correct, um, correct intellectual positions concerning Christ. I may hold absolutely correct intellectual views concerning Christ as a person and his power and yet never be a Christian. It is possible for me to admire him and never realize him. It is quite possible for a person to believe most sincerely in his deity, in the fact of his atoning work, and moreover, in the necessity for regeneration, and yet never be submitted to his lordship, never to have personal share in the work of his atonement, never to be born again. Pretty strong words, huh? And so that is why the first sermon I did in the New Testament um, was out of Matthew 4.23, where I felt like the need to define what is a disciple, and we put cards out again, because not as many people were here in early January. If you don't have one, you can grab one of those. But here's what a disciple is, according to Matthew 4.23. It is a person. A disciple is someone who personally knows Jesus and is following him, is being changed by him, and is on mission with him. And that's what Jesus is calling these three men to, okay? Don't just be fans and just want to hang around me. It's a person who personally, intimately knows me. You are following me with your life. You're being changed by me, and you're on mission with me. I love Jesus. Challenges me all the time. About every other page, I'm kind of like, ooh, that one hurt. But I love him because he's wild. He's the creator. He is the great lion. And although he's good, he is not a tame lion, is he? He's altogether different than I would expect. And that's what I would think the creator would be like, that he would constantly surprise me. So here's how I want to wrap up. 
Here's how I want to wrap up. A few questions. Um, and trust me, when I'm, like, when I'm working on this stuff during the week or if I'm thinking about it a month ahead of time, uh, I'm asking myself these questions all the time. Like, Garen, what are you going to do with this teaching? What are you going to do with this? Because this conversation's about you. What are you going to do with this? And I was even asking myself, um, I follow him, but who do I tend to most align with even today in maybe some of my day-to-day response to him? Am I, do I tend to be the idealist or do I tend to be the, the realist, the person who can easily throw out some conditions here or there, some qualifications to things? Um, I'll be honest, I can, the realist, those are the guys I most understand in my heart. But I also want to ask one more question that I would do Jesus a disservice and you guys if I didn't. Um, are you a fan or a follower? You just admire Jesus. You like him. You like his morals. You like hanging out at the place where people who follow Jesus are. You like the music. I mean, are you a fan of him or are you really a follower? Are you really a follower? Have you really turned the keys of your life over to him? Um, I would hate to face Jesus one day and have him say, you know, you took words I spoke that were very intentionally pretty strong and you just toned those things down, but by doing that, you let a lot of people be fans. You know, not a lot, but you let some people be fans because they didn't really understand what it meant to follow me. I don't want to face him and have to answer that. So some of us today are here, like I've been this week, like I've been for a month as I've thought about this text It's been a chance for me to renew that genuine heart commitment I made to him a long time ago. I do really, you are my Lord. I do want to follow you unconditionally. Forgive the ways that I don't, but that really is the driving passion of my life, right? So maybe for some of you this morning, this is just a reminder of of that recommitment. But there's probably people here today who are like, I am like one of those three, and I have buts and ifs, and I'm holding back on Jesus. I haven't yet decided to give my life to him. And if that's you, I really want to challenge you. Um, Maybe now's the time to make that commitment. So I'd like to wrap up by singing of our devotion and our commitment to following Jesus by singing a very old, famous song. So would you stand with me and let's close with some worship. decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. The cross before me
turning back I have decided to follow Jesus I have decided to follow Jesus I have decided to follow Jesus no turning back no turning back no turning back no turning back yeah when I first became a believer and I was like new in church in Hayes um, they needed a teacher of a there was a class of some men who were at a home uh, who had mental disability, and they needed somebody to teach that or to do that class. So um, I ended up taking it. I knew I wanted to serve Jesus, my new Lord, in some way. And there was one guy. We would sing every week some songs, songs that were all new to me. This was a new one. Um, but there was one guy in there. Every time we sang it, the second verse, he'd always, when we sang, cause before me. Couldn't even, he wouldn't even sing, but he'd just do this. And then the world behind me, he'd do this. And I'm like, wow, this guy knows what it's about. So even I was over there doing that. So let's just take a minute to pray. Father, actually, I want to give you just a moment of silence. Just talk to the Father about whatever it is he has to say to you about this whole thing of following him. I just want to give you a minute to talk with him and then I'll close this up. Lord Jesus, I humbly come before you, totally acknowledging who you are, that you are the rightful king of the kingdom, the eternal kingdom, that you're my Lord. Lord, forgive us, forgive me when I don't follow well, when I take the keys of my life back and I want to be in control. Um, thank you for how you constantly call me back to, to your lordship and giving that back to you and that, to that commitment. I just pray that you would make 12th Avenue a body of people, that this would be a place of people who are followers of you, that when people think of this church or the people here, they see people who are committed to Jesus, who have this wholehearted devotion to him. May we be that kind of a place. If there's anybody here this morning who still doesn't know, hasn't quite crossed that line, doesn't um, do that, I just pray that your spirit would be at work and you'd bring them to that point of, of, uh, of accepting and receiving you as their Savior and as their Lord, and that free gift of salvation that you offer. And Lord, we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, 12th, as always, you are sent as followers of him.